Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 29th, 2015, and my guest is Adam Davidson, co-founder of NPR's Planet Money. He writes the On Money column for the New York Times Sunday Magazine. Adam, welcome back to Econ Talk. It's really great to be here, Russ. Our topic for today is an article you wrote recently at the Times Magazine called What Hollywood Can Teach Us About the Future of Work. It's some of the economics you learned while being a technical advisor on a Hollywood film. And I want to start by hearing more about that experience. Uh, technical advisor to a Hollywood film sounds like a very good job or what the Gershwins called nice work if you can get it. Uh, what was that like? So it was absolutely awesome. It was a really fun experience, although I will say it is not a lucrative experience. I mean, it, it was fine. I, you know, I didn't do it for free, but it was not. Uh, a friend of mine yesterday said, oh, is this the kind of this retirement money, and it is definitely not something to do for the money. The, the technical advisor definitely makes the least amount of money on a Hollywood set, I would say. But I'm not upset because it was really, really fun. Um, what happened was um, Adam McKay is a uh, you know, major Hollywood writer and director. He uh, was at Second City and helped found the Upright Citizens Brigade and then went on to be the head writer at Saturday Night Live and became a creative partner with Will Ferrell and wrote and directed the Anchorman movies, Talladega Nights, Step Brothers. Um, but he is um, a guy who cares a lot about economics and economic issues, and he decided to um, helm the adaptation of Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short. So, Former um, Econ Talk guest, I have to get into the name-dropping Hollywood thing. Yes. Former I'm Econ sorry. Talk guest and former Planet Money guest, I'll also mention. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, so um, Adam McKay uh, was working on this script for, for The Big Short, and uh, you know, he quickly found himself struggling, as I think all of us did, with um, understanding what these toxic assets were that um, were so central to the financial crisis. He wanted to understand um, better the, uh, you know, just the, the broad world of Wall Street, but also how a crisis in Wall Street could have such devastating impact on people around the country and around the world. Um, and I, uh, my brother, Eben Davidson, is a senior vice president at Paramount Pictures. And um, so he's one of the guys who um, is in charge of making movies at Paramount. And he was talking to Adam McKay and said, hey, you should talk to my brother. My brother Adam Davidson knows a lot about that stuff. And so that's how it happened. And, and so for over a year, Adam McKay and I would talk quite often, I mean, for hours at a time, very often, as he was writing the script. Um, but it was when the movie actually got greenlit and started um, production that, that I really got involved even, even more so. For the non-insider, greenlit means the... Uh the company approved the the filming of it, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, that whole part of it was really interesting because, um, 
you know, this is a movie with, you know, uh, it's, it's a, a, a major, you know, major motion picture uh, starring Brad Pitt, Christian Bale, Ryan Gosling, Steve Carell. So, you know, major, major motion picture. Um, Couldn't they get and, anybody and good? It, yeah, I know. It was this ridiculous, ridiculous And why did they, And um, why did they stoop so low on the technical advisor side? They're going top shelf. What? Never mind. Go ahead. Keep going. <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, they definitely could have. Although I will tell you, like Adam McKay did talk to a variety of economists. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not an economist. But you play, and, one, you play one on Hollywood. Uh, yes, <laughs> on and Hollywood I play one set. on the radio and in print. But um, I, I don't want to speak for him. And I'm, I'm frankly, he'd be thrilled to be a guest on your show and would be happy to tell you himself. But um, I, I think economists are um, and Russ, I would genuinely say you are an exception to this, but economists as a, as a group are not the greatest at at conveying their work in um, English so that yeah. people can understand it, and also not the greatest at accessing the emotional stakes of of um, of, of the the work they do. So, you know, a, a lot of our conversations were about you know linking some financial product or someone's view about a financial product to an emotion, to ground it emotionally so that we, you know, he could write a scene where someone is deciding to short a collateralized debt obligation, say, and um, Adam really wants to understand what is a collateralized debt obligation? Why would someone short it? Why was that considered a strange trade um, in early 2006, say, and what was it like to be a person who was going against the market and having a very different view than the rest of the market? And just, you know, we don't have to go too deep into it unless you want to, but a collateralized debt obligation, a CDO, for those who don't know, that's when I think of toxic assets, that was the essential toxic asset. That was one of these weird derivative products based on mortgage-backed securities that were at the heart of the financial crisis. And this movie is about a handful of people who understood before others did that um, CDOs and, and other um, mortgage-related financial products were you know, a bubble or, or about to lose a lot of value and, and create a lot of havoc. So how... When it came time to film the movie, uh, how long were you on the set for? How many – was it a day, a week, a month? What were you doing? Yeah, I was there probably a month altogether and, it, and uh, maybe just under a month. And, and it, I think it was about two months of – I think they call it principal photography. Um, so the, the economics of shooting a movie – that takes place entirely in New York, but shooting it in New Orleans was very interesting. You know, that's all about um, tax incentives, and that's a whole conversation yeah, to have. Another, yeah. yeah, I think you and I would both agree that yeah. that's probably Stranger, not yeah. a great use yeah. of public resources. But, um, but there it was um, in New Orleans, and finding you know those corners of New Orleans that that were they were able to make look like New York, or in other cases, California or Florida. So that was all interesting. But what, um, when you were on the set, were you doing things like, oh, he wouldn't be happy when the price went down? I mean, did you have a role, or were you just there for fun? No, no. So, so, the, so working on the script, there was a lot of conversation about what the characters would feel um, you know, based on different market conditions. So, you know, so, so if, if you try and put yourself in the shoes of, and these were real people in Michael Lewis's book, Michael Burry or, um, or, 
you know, uh, uh, Danny Moses or whoever, um, who were making a huge bet, staking a lot of their personal wealth and their professional reputation on betting against a product. And that product continued to rise in value despite them telling their investors, no, no, it's about to go down in value. What would that feel like mm. and what was going on there? Um, so that was all <laughs> sort of in the year before as he's right. writing the script, or, or that was largely in the year before. Um, then on the set, I mean, I'd say my biggest role was working with what they call the department heads. So there's a bunch of what they call creative departments. There's um, the set designer who's or who's in charge of the overall look and feel of the set, but then there's separately a set dresser who is in charge of the physical objects that are on the set that actors do not touch. And then separately, there's a prop master who is in charge of the physical objects that actors do touch. And then there's a costume designer who's obviously in charge of the costumes. And it was fascinating to me how specific and specialized these roles are. So for example, well, I have to I watches have to, I have to quote Adam Smith because you know his insights I'm going to quote him later but or mention him later but his understanding about the power of specialization to create wealth and in turn create more specialization is very um this is this is an incredible 2015 experience, right? I mean it's absurd how specialized things are. But go ahead. I it was amazing you. how specialized. Yeah, I mean on the set there are 250 150 to 250 people each of them with a very clear and understood job. And, and that's what struck me. I was on set the very first morning of the very first day of shooting. You know, it's dawn, it's 6.50 or something in the morning. Um, and it's, I think, 150 people that day who've never worked together in this configuration. Maybe some of them had known each other on other shoots. But, and instantly, without anyone saying anything, there's no speech, there's no meeting. It's just instantly everybody is doing their job. The... They're laying cables for the lights. They're setting this. They're setting that. Anyway, it was all very fascinating. Did you want to but say the, something about specialization? I interrupted you. Did you? Have, you yeah. Just, yeah. So, go ahead. so, um, so you have, um, and, and it's very clear to them. It took me a long time to figure it out, but you know, there, there's someone who's in charge of painted walls if they're not um, active in the scene but someone else is in charge of the walls if the walls are somehow interacted with by actors. So the wall, there was a wall where someone did some drawing on. That's the prop master's work, not the set designer's work, because it involves markers, I guess, that the guy holds in his hand. Um, I learned that watches, for example, is, is prop master, not, not costume designer. Um, sure. There's the director of photography. There's a lighting department. And... Um, and what struck me was they, they had a relatively little bit of time before production started where um, Adam McKay, the director and writer, um, would meet with them and, and set an overall tone. You know, it, Adam McKay is known for these kinds of absurdist, almost com cartoonish um, live action comedies. And a lot of these people were people he had worked with on those, but he wanted to make clear that is not what I'm going for. This is a very real feeling, almost documentary feeling film. Um, there, there's certainly a kind of melancholy, um, you know, the, this is a film about a financial crisis that affects real people. Um, so Adam McKay sets an overall feel, an overall tone, but then 
each of the um, creative department heads has to interpret that in their own way. So I had a very long talk with a set designer about the particular color of off-white he used mm -hmm. for the walls in certain offices. Um, the costume designer would really, like, she was amazing, um, Sue Matheson. I mean, she would... Um, she called all the real people involved. She did enormous amounts of research to understand exactly what people wore. It was technically considered a period piece, even though the period was 2006, not that long ago. Um, it's a historical so she had, Yeah, she had to know, like, how were people wearing their collars way back when in 2006 on Wall Street? What kind of shirts were they wearing? Um, and then the prop master, et cetera. So, um, so they they were in charge of that, although they asked me, I, I talked to them a lot on the phone. I actually took them to a trading floor in Los Angeles um, and brought them on a tour of a trading floor and explained um, the different kinds of computer screens that would be there, the different, um, like the, the, all the paper, you know, there is a surprising amount of paper I find in trading floors these days, research that people get from banks or um, lists of you know, prospectuses and stuff like that. So I explained all that to them. They were very fascinated, you know, on trading floors. People always have these like loose site awards and loose site um, objects that, um, and, and a lot of the discussion was um, how, quote unquote, real would this be? I mean, how documentary was it? And McKay said, you know, I want this almost, you know, like 98, 99% real. Um, and, and this was a real challenge. I mean, a bunch of the people on this film had worked on The Hunger Games. Some of them worked on the new Terminator movie. So these are people who are – different. You know, they can create you know, crazy worlds. And suddenly, I mean, there's nothing more boring than a trading floor. I mean, it's an office with desks and computer screens and mostly guys in like white and blue shirts and dark slacks sitting and typing, you know. And – you know, McKay was not going to have the fantasy that people have. There weren't going to be people standing on chairs and screaming out, buy and sell orders. And um, there, he wasn't going to fake it a lot. So it was amazing to me how they were able to both be true to reality, but still somehow make it alive. And that, that just, I mean, I guess you need to be a genius at what kind of off-white <laughs> makes a really boring office look interesting. Um, so, so at first they were asking me very broad questions, just what is this universe? They didn't know. I think a lot of them did think of, you know, the movie Trading Places or the movie Bonfire of the Vanities where there's people screaming and yelling and throwing things and cursing. And I, I dissuaded them of that. And then, um, but then it became very, very pragmatic. What exact documents would be on this desk and what documents would be on that desk. I was the middleman with Bloomberg because Bloomberg, you know, everybody has Bloomberg screens who's a trader and Bloomberg actually has a process where they create screens for movies. And I was the guy who would talk to them. Here's what this guy would have on his computer screen, but this woman would have this other chart or this other graph or whatever it might be. Um, and in this movie, they really wanted it accurate. I mean, you'll, when the movie comes out, and hopefully you'll see it, you'll see there are offices filled with paper. I mean, just piles and piles of paper. And I'm pretty confident that all of that paper is pretty much what would have been there. So there are real prospectuses from real financial instruments. There are real reports from real um, 
banks and and you know, uh, you know analysis firms. Um, one of the actors was telling me, um, you know, how cool it was to be kind of waiting between shots and just randomly picking up a piece of paper and <laughs> thinking, wow, that's actually what my character would have had at his desk. What's weird about it is that, you know, there's this famous story. I think I forget which book it's in. Doesn't matter, but it's you know William Sonoma had some catalog, and on the cover of the catalog was a, some kind of food, and let's pretend it was a pie. And they did this real beautiful photo shoot of the pie, and then somebody tasted the pie and it didn't taste good. So they threw everything out. They, they wouldn't use any <laughs> of the pictures, right? So here, is the, here are these people trying to recreate something that 99.99% of the audience has no idea what it is authentic, right? But they want it to be authentic anyway, and that, that's interesting by itself. Um, given the list of people who were there and, and what that whole experience was like, uh, is this the most fun you've had since, you know, getting to know about the Kane's Hike rap videos? How would you rank this <laughs> in terms of uh, th professional thrills? This has got to be up there. It's pretty fun. I would say it's definitely high up there. It was really fun. And I'm not above saying that it is thrilling to sit down with Brad Pitt or Ryan Gosling or Christian Bale or Steve Carell and be tasked with explaining the financial crisis to them. That's pretty exciting. I got to admit, I'd well, love to say, oh, I'm above all that, but I'm not. It no, was really fun. And I have to say, by the way, yeah. they were all awesome. Just like, honestly, humble, professional, cool, easy. Um, I was surprised. I, I had in my head what a movie star might be like. And these guys were, they came to work. They came, they were serious. They were brilliant. I mean, it was, I mean, it, even if they weren't superstars, it would have been just a thrilling experience. Just to, I mean, everybody involved, I have to say, were, were top of their game. And I, um, just everyone, I mean, these were the costume designer, the depth. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I would think I would never care about the costume designer, but she's amazing. And the thought that went into, um, what people wore and how that conveyed the story and how that supported the mood, you know, the, as I said, the set designer, the prop master, all of that was really, it was just cool. I was just going to say what several people told me this was an unusually pleasant experience. <laughs> so, um, you know, yeah. uh, and, and that, that whatever nightmare you can imagine is, is, is a very real possibility. Just uh, an abusive director who screams and yells, actors who act like divas, you know, um, a bunch of people who don't coalesce so elegantly. I mean, people told me this was an unusual experience. And and part of what made it unusual, I mean, I think Adam McKay just, you know, he's become a close friend and he's just a really good guy. But he he set a tone that we are telling a real story and an important story and that this is not just a piece of entertainment, but this is, you know, something of a historic document. And it's important that people understand it. And I think... So I I would I would say this was a huge outlier in the degree of respect they gave to I mean not just to me but to to the idea of getting it right getting the economics right getting the finance right I don't think that's typical I'd like to volunteer to be the technical advisor to the technical advisor if if that's if that position's available in your next gig. I hope you keep <laughs> well, me in you mind. You would have been very helpful. I'll take a small, yeah. very small uh, stipend. And uh, yeah. I was the reason I mentioned Adam Smith before, uh, saying I would mention him again, is one of my questions, which you kind of answered, but I'm going to ask to get Smith in, is that 
you know, Smith says in The Theory of Moral Sentiments, man naturally desires not only to be loved but to be lovely. And he says there's two ways to be loved. One's to be rich, famous, and powerful, and the other is to be virtuous. And he said there's a seductive aspect to being loved in that first way. We all are attracted by wealth and by power and by money. And people who have those things, people pay attention to them. They're loved. That's what Smith means by love. They, they're respected and they get a lot of um, – when, when they walk in the room, people, heads turn. And so you were in that universe in a, an extraordinary way. Uh, those names you mentioned are, are not just, oh, those are, those are real stars. Those are at the, the top of the top. Uh, and yet they, uh, they're, they were, you're saying they were pretty lovely in the virtuous sense too, not just the fact that they were uh, rich and famous and a little bit powerful. Yeah, it it felt like um, I, I remember seeing the dancer Margot Fontaine uh, give an interview where she said she was always taught to take the work very seriously and not to take herself seriously at all, and that that is definitely the experience I had. This was a a, a group of people who felt they were doing something very important, both the story itself and and you know, adding hopefully to people's knowledge of, of this financial crisis, but more broadly that, you know, embodying characters, telling an emotional story is a serious and important job. And I did not witness anybody taking themselves too seriously. Of course, um, they could have been I, acting. They could have been <laughs> acting. Yeah. And I should say, my dad's an actor. I, uh, you know, my dad's not a famous actor. He's a solid, you know, journeyman actor. And so I grew up surrounded by actors and, and, um, and I would say, but I, I would say that is my general experience of actors. I mean, that there, you know, there certainly might be a little, I mean, broadly speaking, there might be a touch more narcissism than there is in the general, um, public. And there's certainly, um, you know, there certainly ha have been divas I've met in my life, but, um, but I think people take it pretty seriously. And certainly that's what I saw, um, on this production. It's incredibly fun. Um, Anything uh, – any, before we move on to the, quote, economics, the, the, the less uh, glamorous part of this episode, uh, is there any story you want to share with us that, uh, that you can share? I know you can't tell everything that happened on the set. Uh, you're under all kinds of confidentiality and non-disclosed agreements. Do you have anything you can share that's um, G-rated for our audience that might amuse? <laughs> um Here's the constraint, and this was something that I was mindful of, and it is an economic lesson. So, so one thing that I have thought about celebrity in general and, and is when, when you are a significant celebrity, um, there is an orbit around you. There, there's a world of people whose whose lives, whose income depends on you, and. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's ecosystem after ecosystem. You, you have your own people, your manager, your agent, maybe, you know, a producer, a film company. Then you have these other people, paparazzi and gossip columnists and others that feed off of that fame. And, um, the, um, and, and the end result is that anything I might say about any one of these celebrities suddenly has this, economic value in the world and, and, and can be distorted and misused, etc. I honestly have nothing negative. I have nothing salacious, but I have some nice stories of having nice times with really pleasant people and they're nice stories, but I don't want to tell them because it's, 
It's okay, Adam. I'll just tell my kids yeah. I talked to somebody who was hanging out with Christian Bale. They'll be very excited. My, okay. They're big fans of, of Christopher Nolan, and they just, they just that's great. Uh, let's, yeah. let's move I, all right, here's just a quick, um, we were, um, we just had this funny moment when my, my son who's three always wears some Superman costume on set. And uh, we, he happened to be wearing his Captain America outfit when he met Christian Bale. And it was, normally he wears his Batman outfit. Yeah. And we were going to explain to him Awkward. like, that's Batman. <laughs> but then I realized that as a, to a three-year-old, that literally means nothing. Like, he's yeah. an act, yeah, he's or, the actor or, who plays. And if it means something, it's probably years of therapy ahead of him to cope with that at three. I mean, he's not ready to, it's too, it's too intense. Right, exactly. Although I will say my son, after spending, he, he probably spent a f few hours, several days in a row on the set. Um, and again, this is a movie about people sitting in offices talking about financial products. <laughs> And uh, it's a great, great movie, by the way. Uh, I'm think. sure. But, oh, yeah. Oh, uh, but, my God. But, but for yeah, a three-year-old. <laughs> and so one day we were getting ready to go to the set. And he said, can we go to a set where they make movies I like to watch? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's get to the economics uh, that you wrote about in the piece. Thanks for all that. That was fascinating and a lot of fun. But you took this time and made a set of observations, this experience, and made some more general observations, partly about Hollywood, but also about the economy, the wider economy. And in particular, you are going to riff off this observation that here are these hundreds of people who just spring into action on day one. And when, this, when, this, when the lights go out, when the set is taken down, they're scattered to the winds. They're not part of a of a company, they're they're all freelancers brought together for this experience, and you call that the Hollywood model. So, talk about what you uh, what you saw that made you think about that. So, um, I've been thinking a lot because I'm working. I'm writing a book, which will not be out till next year, and I will definitely be calling you repeatedly to be a guest on you can talk about that. I'll think um, about it. But uh, <laughs> it, it's a book that tries to mm -hmm. explore how work will happen in the 21st century. And, and I've been thinking a great deal about how work happened in the 20th century. And um, like you, Ronald Coase, um, the crucial University of Chicago um, economist. Has and LSE, a, even though I have a Chicago and, PhD. And, and, right, yes, and LSE. Work, some of the work we're talking um, about at the LSE, so I think. Right. I think it's the LSE. Yeah, it, it's an incredible story, by the way. So, so he... Um, he asked and answered one of the fundamental questions, I would say, of the 20th century, um, and which, which is very much on my mind. So, so, and, and he did it at 20. It, it really is an incredible story. He was a college kid studying economics in England. Um, I don't think he was at LSE yet, although I'm not sure about that. I think I'll do some Googling at, while you talk. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, and he got this grant or this research project to travel around um, the U.S. and look at um, American businesses. And um, I believe this is 1930. He's 20 years old. And he um, no, asks this incredibly simple question. And I know you have talked about this on Econ Talk. Many times. And so I, many times. So we don't have to go too far down that road. But, but basically noticed, hey, wait a second. We are, we're taught this Adam Smithian world of markets continuously adjusting using the price signal to match supply and demand, why is the major thrust of business in 
America, um, these large corporations where the market signal is completely blunted, where people um, it's command and were, control. Were, where it's command and control, and 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 in the context of the Hollywood model, the average worker is not given signals about their market value. You you get a job, you work in, and this is I'm now spinning off of Coast. Coast, I mean, this is in my mind embedded in Coast, but yeah. isn't um, it wasn't explicit in his um, paper, the theory of the firm. Um, but embedded in Coast is this idea that you're you the average worker, a lab, a person with a salary job. Um, is not receiving a lot of information from the market. They get a job um, for a certain task, and they have that job maybe for decades. And in that time, they're not given the opportunity or the pain of learning what their market price is. And um, and for someone, for you know, much of the middle part of the 20th century, this was a pretty good deal for an awful lot of people. You know, we have the great wage compression and people who are kind of sheltered from those market signals did did fairly well there's a whole conversation to have about efficiency wages and on and on about you know but um, but broadly speaking um, it, it wasn't for people who got those jobs it was not a bad thing to be shielded from the market and, um, to, have, and, and to have a long-term relationship with one employer who you would invest both sides could invest in the other and get better at the job and the worker could acquire skills that the firm would find useful. And there's some romance about long-term employment in the United States but there, and how long-term it was in the 20th century. But on average, I think uh, the model that you're talking about that you saw is clearly not that model. <laughs> right. So, so, so my argument would be that for a whole host of reasons that Kosian and – it's not Kosian. It's not like he was for it. He was just observing it. But that kind of classic Kosian – or also Alfred Chandler, um, the you know the great Harvard business historian, you know, d describes this also that kind of Chandlerian firm where there's you know thousands of people protected from market signals that because of trade, because of technology, that is less and less the case. I'm not making some absolute claim that right. that's going away forever, but but more and more people are finding that the market is signaling them continuously. I see this in my field in journalism. I mean, when I joined public radio in the 1990s, it was already, even though it was, you know, NPR was only, you know, 22 years old at that point, it was already well established as a solid union job where um, you could make a solid low six figures income and very few people lost the job, very few people made more than that. It was just a very predictable, solid career with very little market signal. And I would say today in journalism, I have friends who have lost enormously. They've lost their jobs. They, they've had, had a, probably a permanent wage shock. And then I have other friends who are multimillionaires who've made a fortune because of um, shifts in the marketplace that, that they've taken advantage of. And so what the Hollywood model, one of the salient facts in my mind was that all of these various workers, the, the creative department heads, the actors, the writer and director, even the technical folks, the the electricians, the carpenters, um, they live in a world where they receive a market signal all of the time that they you know, their, their life is broken up into these projects. This one was two months, some bigger movies like the hunger game movies, that might be a year and a half. I think, you know, the, there are, you know, the, the, 
the big franchises like um, the Hobbit movies, you know, it might you might get a job for three or four years, right? And but because for the, the most sequels, yeah, yeah. But for the most part, you're talking about people who two or three or four times a year are directly receiving market information about their value. They're negotiating their wages um, movie by movie. And they're also receiving continuous information um, from the market because it's a very networked world and they're learning who else is getting hired and, who el- and, and getting a sense of how much money other people are getting paid. So just as one example that I found really funny was um, Julie Hewitt, who was the um, head of makeup for the film and, and um, was telling me that there's been this explosion in zombie makeup over the last few years. There's the walking dead and all these zombie ripoff stuff. And she said, she doesn't, she's not, that's not a specialty of hers. She's not particularly interested or, or experienced in zombie makeup, but that she had some friends who were, who really knew how to make a living person look like a dead person seeking to eat brains. And that went from a very obscure skill with little market demand to an extremely in demand skill with very limited market demand. And I mean, with very extreme market demand, you know, the demand far exceeded the supply. And so she was telling me her friends were doing great. There were all these people taking classes and how to do zombie makeup. But that kind of symbol signal is happening continuously. And it's happening on many dimensions. It's happening because of taste. So there's no way to predict 20 years ago that, you know, zombies would become really hot. And, And so there's no way to tell someone in, I don't know, 1997, like, oh boy, you should really go to zombie makeup school. Um, So there's just kind of taste. There's also technology. I mean, as um, camera technology changes, it dramatically shifts the kinds of jobs. um, uh, And and I had a long talk with the director of photography, this brilliant guy, Barry Aykroyd. He did United 93 and Captain Phillips and a ton of other great movies. And you know, he was telling me, you know, there's a whole job called the focus puller. Somebody who just, you know, there's the director of photography setting the overall look of the photography. Then there's a cameraman actually operating the camera. Um, and then there's someone who f- puts the camera into focus. So there's a focus puller. And that focus puller job is being threatened because there's new technology that allows focusing to be done more quickly. And in my mind, for the highly skilled people who I was meeting, this is a much better deal than the Kosian Chandlerian world we described. That these were people at the top of their game. They were receiving continual signals telling them what, what skills they needed to refresh, what skills were no longer valuable and needed to be replaced. And, um, and as time went on, they were able to establish a kind of reputational value. So that that was something else I learned that in this world where you need a team to come together very quickly and work well together, not being a jerk is a hugely yeah, valuable really thing. Uh, yeah, I just, yeah. I think of the Hayek, the Hayekian role of prices to convey information that's it, that you're talking about. It's really a incredibly dramatic part of it, but there's also this, you know, what, what Hayek called the particular knowledge of, of um, particular circumstances, I think of time and place and it would seem to me that there's there must be certain directors who have certain styles and certain tastes. Obviously, many of them will use the same actors, and I assume they use the same – we know they use the same cinematographers. But under – those are at the highest end. But throughout that whole 
chain of cooperation, the hundreds of other people you're talking about, they have to have some feel or at least the flexibility to adapt to the tastes of a particular director or the kind of movie that's being made. And they have to draw on their past experience or, again, their ability to adapt to it because that that image that you conveyed uh, as – you know, it's it's sunrise, it's dawn on day one, and all of a sudden this beehive, almost literally, because it's this decentralized beehive, the director is not sitting in that 1940s chair bossing people around. The, the director might, for a certain scene, is going to move people over to this point or that point. But all the technical stuff that underlies that is emerging through the knowledge that the players have of, of how this gets done from the, that they've had in the past. And if this current model, this current project, they're not doing a good job, they're not they're gonna pay a very high price because they're gonna be less in less demand the next time. So it must be, it's a really an amazing application of 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 it's where hike and coast come together, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. And it and it's a it's a delicate ballet because you're and this was some advice my brother gave me early on where he said you know basically people make two mistakes. One mistake is they don't assert themselves enough and they just all right, I'll just support your vision. I'll just do whatever you tell me. But the director is hiring all these people to have an opinion, to have a view. And so um, and so you so need to assert your view. Director yeah. specialized. Director doesn't want to try to figure out what costume, to, what watch the person should be wearing. That's not useful. Exactly. Right. Of you want to uh, – The time. Yeah. Exactly. And you and you want a costume designer or a prop master who has strong opinions, who says, I think this really works. This is in keeping with the character. I don't agree on this thing. But at the same time, you don't want to assert it too much. And that's an incredibly delicate yeah. um, game and, and, and has to adapt because, you know, I think Adam McKay is a fairly um, accessible, easy to get along with guy. Other directors are very rigid and, and um, are, are not at all easy to get along with. So... Um, so this isn't a problem you solve once. This is a problem endemic to the to the field. Um, I'd, I'd say a couple other like nice features about it, and then I hope we can talk about some of the negatives <laughs> to this world as well. Um, another feature I noticed is that there is it's it somehow both simultaneously rewards experience and rewards professionalism or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, reliability. The, Reliability, like you, Huge. you, yeah. It, it's not like a cartoon version of Silicon Valley, where it's just all about twenty-four-year-olds, and as soon as you're old, you're no longer innovating. It's you know when you're when you got to do this job, and and a lot of each day of shooting is hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. You want everyone to be a pro, and so you're willing to hire the fifty-eight-year-old um, with a proven track record, even if there's that super hot twenty-four-year-old who you're not quite sure about yet. But that being said, there still are slots for the young people. There's a real apprenticeship program that, that is, I mean, not, not a formal apprenticeship yet. program, but people, it's very, just very well understood that the young assistants are trying to learn and are trying to mimic and, and mirror the elders and then the, their elders. And then also because um, these movies come together so last minute and uh, sometimes and you just can't get your first choice. Just you, the the younger people do have an opportunity, maybe not as quickly as they want it, but th there's a reasonable expectation that at some point I'm going to be given my shot, that I'm going to 
I'm going to get to be the top guy simply because the first, second, and third choice top guys or gals weren't available. And so I'll come in. So and um, I, I was talking to a um, who didn't work on this movie, but another friend of mine who's a set decorator. So he picks the things for the set and he really wants to be a designer. And he just told me, I'm just waiting for that day that <laughs> there's just no designers available. And then they say, all right, well, we got to give this guy a shot. So the thing that struck me when you, 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 one of the things I thought was insightful about your piece was the idea that perhaps the last hundred years of American economic history, the corporate form and the more longer term employment is, is an aberration rather than a, something that would persist. And thinking about it, one of the reasons it's dying, there's a lot of reasons that it's not dying, but it's less common. And one of the reasons the Hollywood mood model is is on the rise is a Coasian reason, which is the reduction in transaction costs. And of course, Coase argued that the reason you go through this, quote, inefficient firm structure of bossing people around instead of using price signals is that it's not free to use price signals. And so what looks inefficient actually isn't. And I was thinking that when you live in a world where information and reputation is much more easily discovered, where you can hire somebody out of Seattle if you're in Florida or out of uh, Boston if you're in L.A., who's, quote, the best person, There's there's got to be a much more, I'm guessing, a much more uh, refined and knowledgeable uh, set of, there's much more information about who can do these jobs well so that if you said to me, in three months, we're going to put together this team to do X, Y, and Z. That director or that producer can find those people quickly and not worry that it's going to be a disaster. Because if that weren't true, then you'd have your own in-house costume designer, your in-house, et cetera. But once it becomes relatively inexpensive and not inexpensive, but the quality can be maintained through this this more uh, spontaneous model, you really have a, uh, a much uh, a chance for it to survive, it seems like, and to thrive. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it did – one thing I kept thinking about is the economic importance of gossip. And this wasn't a gossipy set in the, in the mean way. I mean I, I, I know nothing about the sex lives of anybody involved or anything like that. But one thing I noticed is when you get a bunch of um, movie people together – it very quickly, the conversation is about other movie people. And, oh, did you hear about this guy who completely flamed out on this project? Or that woman who saved the day on this project? Or, oh boy, you're going to work with that guy? Yeah, he's really temperamental. He's brilliant, but really temperamental. And um, and that just was a constant thing. And then my wife would, if she were here, would say that that's also true for me and my journalism friends, that we're constantly having that conversation. Yeah, and, sure. and maybe yeah, it's part of every workplace. It's part of every and and um, in a kind of Kosian Chandlerian world where the market signal appears only occasionally, you know, once every few years or so, um, that still exists. But here it has real economic force. I mean, I, I have to assume that if the number of people out there saying, "Boy, Adam Davidson's kind of a lame technical advisor," if that goes up too high, I'm not getting another it's job. Over. It's over, if, Adam. Yeah. yeah. Right. Although I will say, I think I was a very good technical advisor. And that's what I hear. No, that's what I hear. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, but I hear exactly. you needed – I heard there were times when you needed someone else to lean on, and it would have been helpful to have the technical advisor to the technical advisor. Just what I heard. I don't – you know, I can't – I can't Russ, tell you where I, will I heard tell that. You, I, I brought your name quiet. up. I, I am very honest. <laughs> this is a true story. I sent your podcast to Adam McKay and to several of the actors. I mentioned you. I really did. 
you're not the only economist I mentioned, but there weren't a lot. We don't want to hear about the other ones, Adam. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. That's fine. Let's keep that between you and yeah. me. Yeah. Um, I just want to mention we did a um, – we had an interview with uh, Reed Hoffman and Ben Kesnoka uh, about a year ago on their book, The Alliance, where they argue it's not the same point, but it's clearly very related that people who work in corporations today who pretend – uh, that it's a long-term relationship. We talked. Th- their book is about the fact that we sort of have this lingering uh, allure of this relationship between employer and employee that is that is dying. Even when you're in a corporation, he, they argue you should recognize it might not be for very long, and both employer and employee should be transparent about it to make that relationship work more effectively. So they're not talking about this Hollywood model, the you know projects that start and stop over two to six or. 12 months, whatever it is, they're just saying that realistically, most people don't stay on the job for a long time. So that changes all the incentives on both sides, and it would be better to talk about it openly. And I, I what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I actually was, yeah, I had dinner with Reed and Ben um, sometime last year, and, and I told them that their book made me very excited because it was sort of a, for me, the first solution I had heard of in a corporate context that, that actually seemed hopeful and, and, and honest. Uh, I, I found it extremely exciting to, I mean, basically import the, the best aspects of the Hollywood model into a corporate model and where, where everything is explicit. I mean, that's one thing about the Hollywood model. It's very explicit. There is no, you know exactly how valued you are in the marketplace and you know, um, you know, and and you are told that several times a year over and over again. And you know and, that each and, project has a start date and a probable end date. It might drag on longer than people think, but in general, uh, you know that you're going to be out looking for work again. Yes, absolutely. Um, I I think where I get worried or or get sad is thinking about people who don't have specialized skill, who don't who the market is not going to be kind to yeah, year after year. That's a big and, issue. and, and I would say that, you know, there, there clearly is some dividing line where above that line, this system is much better than the old system. So, um, if you're a really great graphic designer at Procter and Gamble in 1957, you're probably making the same money as a really crappy graphic designer at Procter and Gamble in 1957. Like your, your skills are not being rewarded. I mean, maybe if you're a superstar, you can stand out, but basically the 80th percentile guys making the same as the 20th percentile guy, I, I would guess. And, and in this world, you're, you're being priced much more, um, according to your skills. So if you're in the 20th percentile, that's, it's good to make 20th percentile wages. And if you're in the, but if you're in the 80th percentile, it's bad to make 80th percentile You're talking about in the 1950s model. Yeah. I mean, I'm saying that the shift. So, so, you know, my, my claim would be in, in, for most of the 20th century, there's a fairly crude ranking. There's a small handful of superstars then there's a huge middle where everyone's basically making around the same and it's not very precisely correlated with your particular quality or passion or skill. Um, and, and now I would argue more of us are seeing our wages more directly correlated with our particular passion or skill or, um, but in your, in your, let's go back to the economics. Cause in your magazine piece, you argued that you didn't, you didn't talk about the transaction cost part because that's only 
part of it. The other part you emphasized and focused on was the idea that the products we make are different. So when you're in a manufacturing environment, say, where you're churning out a commodity that's the same over and over again, the type of skills that are demanded and then thereby the workforce structure and the firm structure is going to be different than today's world. So what I want to push you toward is what's changing on the output side, on the nature of work in America that makes you think that the Hollywood model is going to be more uh, common? And then we'll talk about who's going to have trouble fitting into that. But why do you argue that that's the future rather than just a quirky thing that happens in L.A.? So, um, so, so the the analogy or the a place that I learned a lot is at this um, textile company in the South that I've, I'm writing about in my book, which was very much a commodity textile producer. They just made um, man-made fibers for like cheap sweaters and athletic wear, and um, for most of the 20th century, and then that business collapsed very abruptly, and they lost it all, and they've reinvented themselves as making kind of complex value-added fibers that are um, they're pretty cool. I mean, resistant to stain or, or, or resistant to flaring for use in, um, for people who work on at utilities and stuff so that um, if a spark happens on them, they won't burn up. Um, anyway, very highly technical fibers. But anyway, the, the point I would make is the, the way to get rich, I mean, if it's 1920 and, and you are all knowing about the next 80 years, becoming better and better at commoditizing your product, becoming better and better at making the same thing over and over again, cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. That's a great way to make a living. And that's a really smart way to make a living, certainly well into the 1970s. Um, and that is, I would argue, the, the kind of core thrust of the American economy is on the production side. It's having a, a, a fairly homogenous suite of products and focusing the bulk of your energy on getting the production cheaper. And, and, um, and so the, the prices keep falling, but, but your, your costs are hopefully falling faster than the prices are. Competition is forcing you to innovate. You're, it's forcing you to pass some of the, most, if not all those savings onto the customer. And you're on a, you're on this constant, I think of it as the Walmart model. You, you know, you find ways to lower and, and control your inventory so that you can sell the same stuff everybody else is selling at a lower price, and eventually that forces prices down. And uh, it's great. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's an amazing and, thing. And what this textile guy explained to me is, in that model, you don't want people thinking for themselves. You don't want the last thing you want is a guy, you know, at fiber spinning machine number 378 to think, hey, I got a great idea. I know how to do this even better. You want that well, you guy. Might, but it's really hard to do. <laughs> it's really hard to do. It's really expensive to to have a system to learn from that person. I mean, the lean manufacturing is actually a brilliant system for doing this and saving money at it. But that, let's leave that aside for now because that, that, that complicates my story in, in, in interesting ways. No, but, but, I, think it's, but I think it's the right point. I think it's going on. It's just not going to be done by the person who's working the machine often, even right. though and, even and though don't. Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations talks about the person with the machine having an idea on how to make it better. But that was okay in 1776, uh, but by 1976, that was a very specialized task already, improving the machine. And that's not going to happen from the people who work on the line most of the time. 
Exactly. And so you, I mean, you have in extreme form, you have, you know, Taylorism and, and, you know, an absolute obsession with, with every um, body movement, etc. I think, you know, we pr- pretty quickly learned that that was too extreme, but, but basically you, you want consistency, you want um, predictability and you want to know that if Frank is sick, we can put Bill in and, and he'll do the job just as well as Frank would that, that, there are clear work rules. There's clear expectations, and 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 you want people not to know that much about the market signal. You don't want them responding on a moment by moment basis to the to cotton prices or fiber prices or sweater prices or or whatever it is your costs and your um, your revenue. It's just not important for them to know. But today, um, that commodity level business is. I mean, there are companies in America that do it. I mean, we actually, you know, we do have a lot of fiber spinning operations that export um, yarn to China. So, so we are competitive in it, but that's a tough, tough way to go. And it involves massive capital expense. You have to just stay on top of the absolute latest in machinery. And, and that's a tough way to go, commodities. But a much better way to go is to have some high-value-added premium on top of your product so that you're not in a commodity price competition race. And so, and again, I, you, this can be misunderstood as talking in extremes because obviously costs and prices, you know, the price you charge and the price you have to pay, both are important in any business. But the emphasis, I think today, the, the core thrust of American business is no longer as much on the production side, on getting your costs down, but on the added value side, getting the price you can charge up by creating a product that people value more than any other product. So you're not in a price competition. And that turns out to be really a totally different challenge that requires um, a system that is receiving signals from the market in a continuous way and coming up with creative solutions. It just requires more people, more brain power, more, um, and, 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 and and more just you you want that system to be really sensitive to the market. So yeah, I, I just another thing I think about is ivory soap. So like up until the you know 1870s or so, for the most part, soap is this horrible thing that you make like your mom makes out back with the fat from the pig your dad slaughtered, and it has gristle and it rots in the sun and stinks. And um, and suddenly there's ivory soap, which is it's not great soap. It's actually pretty awful soap. It dries your skin. It's not a particularly nice soap, but it Big doesn't have gristle. Yeah. It doesn't <laughs> take a lot of time. It doesn't stink um, in, on a hot day in the summer. And so for like a hundred years, it's the soap for everybody. It's exactly wrong for everybody, but it's better than the alternative. Today, there's so many soaps. I mean, the, it, there's an explosion of soaps and there's an explosion in technology. I mean, the, the chemicals inside of soaps, there's such a range of possibilities that, that soap designers have at, at creating new soaps and new feelings and new scents and new everything that you want to really know a specific subgroup of people. What do they care about? What do urban women in their 40s want to feel in a soap and what do hip kids in their you know who are 17 what do they want and you know what do, what do elderly people in an old age home what do they want and um and that what, requires what, is, a, what a strange world it is when when my when my teenage sons leave their body wash in my shower and i mistakenly use it it's a frightening right, exactly. it's a frightening thing and i walk down the street and i'm i won't tell you what happens it's just to say it's dangerous 
<laughs> Sorry, I, I, could, yeah. I couldn't resist. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. I, I try to stay so, away from it. It's, it smells yeah. different. It's not for me. Yeah, pheromones and yeah. And so the way I think about it is, you're injecting the market more deeply into your business, into your you know product development, product manufacturing, your production. You know, um, and I always use manufacturing as a metaphor just because it's easier to picture. But I think this is actually even more so in services. I mean, I, you know, I've spent time with accountants, with lawyers, with doctors who are. And, and medicine is its own problem, obviously, but who are trying to think about um, what is the service people want? Nobody wants um, a tax return. That's not something anyone wants. It's something you have to pay for. But what are what what advice? What what help do you want to think about money? And how can I add to that? Um, how, how can I, as an accountant? add more value. So I think, I think about that constantly as a journalist. I feel like I'm getting more market signals today than I did when I started 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I lived in a broadcast world where I was one of dozens of, you know, hun hundreds of reporters who were producing content for a radio station. We didn't really know what people listened to. We didn't really know what they liked or didn't like. Um, I didn't know what I per personally was adding. But now I live in a world of podcasting and Twitter and online commentary. And I know, believe me, I know day by day, week by week, yeah, I know how many bread. people listen yeah. <laughs> and read. I know what they like and what they don't like. Um, I'm getting tons of market signals all the time. So I just want to push back a little bit. I think I think what you're talking about is is an incredibly important part of, of the change of the economy. And it has implications we're not going to get into, unfortunately, because we're running short on time. But you know, there are obviously implications for a premium that's placed on creativity and flexibility, responsiveness, um, and you know we're not the first people to notice that life's a lot harder for people who aren't well educated. Uh, it seems to have gotten a lot harder because some of the kinds of jobs you're talking about just aren't there anymore, and our education system's not very responsive to that. And we did it, I think, in our last episode that we did. We talked a lot about that. It's, it's obviously a related issue, but it seems to me that on the commodity argument, what you're really saying is that. The value-added part, uh, which, of course, is a it's not just coming from the supply side. It's also coming from the demand side. As we get wealthier, we want we want more choice. We want something more tailored to our interests. So one way to think about this is it's all about customization. It's how do we figure out ways to give our customers what they want by either making different types of products or allowing them to use the products in ways that they can tailor themselves to their own desires. And this is the dynamism of the last 20 years. It just exploded so it, that is undeniably true, I think. What's not obviously true is that that's mainly on the pro, that seems to me mainly on the output product side. Question is why is it going to be the case, if indeed it will be, that on the employment side, the input side, the workforce side, that workers then, because of that transformation towards value added and customization, will tend to be more project based, more in other words. Obviously, Procter & Gamble is going to have – if you're in the soap business today, if you're in the software business today, you're going to have a very uh, creative, specialized team. But when, when Apple you know, creates a new product, Johnny Ive is still the guy and has been the guy for a while that figures out what it's look and feel is. They don't, Steve Jobs didn't hire a different product design guy, even though each product coming out was very different. They had, their in, they had an in-house team. So you're arguing, which is fascinating to think about, you're arguing that – it's more likely that, that people are going to come together for shorter-term projects uh, because of the economy of the future. And I see it right now 
It's more, again, of a transaction cost-driven side that it's cheaper to put that team together. It's not obvious to me that they're going to be more effective in creating the output side. Do you want to think about that? Comment on? Yeah, yeah. And and this is this is a big tough area. And and it's I would say a lot of the data is against me. I mean, so you know, um, actually, tenure at firms. It's early. Is, is, <laughs> is, right. I mean, that's that's basically what I think. Is <laughs> I I feel you know like the characters in the Big Short. I feel like I see something coming before some other people see it. You know, that that's how I feel. But but that means there's a very good chance I'm completely wrong. Um right. but but in a in a backward looking way, um, you know, tenure at firms has increased. People, you know, part of that is demographics. People are just older, but but you know, the average length of time of working is is longer than it was in the twentieth century. Um firm size is, you know, really large. New firms, new entrant firms is shockingly slow to grow. I mean, we just, we have this entrepreneurship deficit. It just stays flat, even as population grows around 400,000 new firms a year. Now I would point out, we're not very good at measuring what that means. I mean, a lot of those are, you know, mom and pop grocery stores or whatever, and not um, a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, the day Google opened, um, it was just one firm out out of 400,000. And so anyway, but, um, but broadly speaking, we, we clearly have not yet completely tipped into the world I'm describing. I, I think what what I see as highly likely is something of a barbellification that um, there are certainly huge industries where economies of scale are only going to get more valuable. And the iPhone really is a singular product and Apple is a singular company in which sure. creating – a product that everybody, you know, one product that everybody loves is that's that's a tricky thing, and and if everyone can do that, great, but not everyone can do that, um, and and but I certainly think you know there's lots of places where economies of scale are only going to increase. I mean, I you know, Google, Amazon, you know, we're seeing it in healthcare, banking, um, but I but I also expect there to be enormous growth on the small and intimate side of the scale where people are um, able to, um, to profit from intent, more intense, deeper interactions with their customers. I mean, an example I'd give is, is my buddy Alex Bloomberg and his new podcasting company, Gimlet. And, um, and, and he's been very public about this because he, you know, he has this great podcast startup. Um, you know, he, he is, he has a podcast company that reaches a tiny fraction of the audience he was able to reach when he was working. He, he and I created Planet Money together. So when he was working on Planet Money. So he's reaching far fewer people, but I can tell you he's bringing in a lot more revenue. And that's because he's creating content that has a level of passionate engagement that's reflected in what companies are willing to pay for advertising and, and, um, and kind of the buzz he gets, et cetera. And um, I, there's a guy in my book, an accountant who's a really interesting guy who used to be kind of a standard CPA who had hundreds of clients who he would do taxes for. And then he decided to throw that model away and basically become a trust, a much more deeply trusted advisor for 40 people. And he makes a lot more money providing a highly valued suite of services for 40 people than he did doing basic accounting functions that software can do for hundreds of people. Right. And so I, I just 
don't know how to see the future without seeing a lot more of that. People finding intimate, passionate engagement with their customers um, in, in a way that requires, you know, in, in unsexy language, you know, a sensitivity to market signals that, you know, fuels every aspect of an organization. So that that's my intuition. That That's what feels like that's going to be more and more. Now, whether that's 8% of the workforce or 20% of the workforce, it's certainly not going to be 100% of the workforce. But what I do feel quite strongly is people who listen to Econ Talk, who listen to NPR, who read the New York Times, people who are educated, who have curiosity and ambition, this is something to look at carefully. This is a real opportunity and 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 something to pay a lot of attention to. You know, I do have blue collar family uh, who didn't go to college. Some of them didn't graduate high school. I don't think I'm going to tell them, hey, you should become a value added entrepreneur who's constantly shifting jobs. I don't think that's good advice for them. But I do think there are people for whom this is a this is a model that that you should be prepared for and 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 even excited about. So I want to close with some of that downside, and I would put it up my own optimistic spin on it and get your reaction. Um, a lot of people are uh, critical of the rise of uh, companies like Uber, where their workforce is essentially uh, peace workers, <laughs> workers who are paid not they don't earn an annual salary; they're paid a commission if they can get a ride, if they can get a, a, a passenger, they can take someone somewhere, and they don't have long-term uh, promises about necessarily benefits, even if they have to provide their own car or pay for their own gas, insurance. And a lot of people are very critical of that. And my answer to that always is, well, how do they get people to do it if it's so awful? And I think that's really important. But I want to say something slightly more optimistic uh, about it, which even, which is, a lot of people like Uber, working for Uber, or I bet they like working on this Hollywood project for six months because when it's over, they can take a month off or a week off. A lot of the people I talk to who drive for Uber, and I, of course, my kids tease me all the time that I always talk to them uh, because I'm interested in it. Uh, a lot of them are entrepreneurs. They're waiting for their funding to come through. Uh, they're waiting for something to happen, and they might work 80 hours a week while they're waiting, and when the money comes through or when their idea starts to click, they're going to work five hours a week and then they'll just stop. And they don't owe any loyalty to anyone. They can move in and out of work as they choose. And I think there's a large group of people who really love that. And that's a feature for many people, not a bug. And what matters is your side, your satisfaction and how rewarding your, your life is emotionally in that world. Uh, your, your financial part of it depends on what you make while you're working. And it's true it's only sort of part-time, but if you make enough, and evidently many Uber drivers are former taxi drivers who make more money with Uber, for example, if you make enough, it's, it's great. And so it seems to me that, to move more generally to your point, that as we, if we move to a world where people are essentially their own company, their own brand, uh, their own – the captain of their own ship rather than an employee – uh, there are many good things about that as long as they have the skills that are in demand that people are willing to pay for. Many people, unfortunately, will not have those skills. That is a serious issue. But for many people, it's, those, are, those are enormous pluses, not minuses. Yeah, I, 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 I 
Yes, I agree with you. And I think, I mean, thinking of life as an Uber driver where that is your only possible source of income, I would guess that that might be tough. I mean, that, that, um, I would expect and with driverless cars, et cetera, you know, price competition is, is, is not going to be your friend. But thinking about a world where you have a whole bunch of options, including TaskRabbit and who knows what else, Airbnb to earn money in a variety of ways that's, um, you know, very, you know, at, at various times and um, in, at various levels of intensity, that that strikes me as only good. I mean, if we could shove that into the 1950s, I think you would have seen a lot more people leaving that corporate model and starting their own businesses or maybe, um, you know, spending more time doing other creative endeavors. So, um, so, so that all strikes me as a, as a helpful tool. It is, I mean, it does sound like some of the people who work at Uber have kind of been jerks. And so I understand, but it does strike me as weird that we're like, some people are mad at the company that's providing this opportunity as if, you know, I mean, it is tough that there are lots of Americans who are underemployed and aren't earning enough. That is a bad situation, but it is confusing to me why why we get mad at the companies that are providing a solution. I, just, I will say, by the way, I think we're only going to get more. I hope we only get more information. I had an Uber driver recently who I came in. She offered me snacks and water. Yeah. She, she <laughs> provided a lot of service. Yeah. That, yeah, it was really amazing. But I thought I have no way of selecting you. Like. All I do is order an Uber. And oh, you do though. You 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 rate her. You give her five stars, and people who continually give her five stars make it more likely that Uber will, will give her the the best customers. And and uh, there are other ways that that market signal I think is working. I, I just have to say it's very important. Uh, I, when I tweet about Uber, I tweeted about Uber recently, and people asked me if if I had shares in the company. Uh, I don't. I don't have a financial stake in right. Uber. It's not uh, some little uh, thing where they're paying me to say nice things about them. They may not be nice people. They may be nice people. I'm not judging that. I have no idea whether they, they have problems, of course. Uh, what I love about Uber and Airbnb and similar companies is that they shake things up and they give consumers more of what they want. And as an economist, that's as close to lyricism as we get other than the fact that it allows some people to flourish and get free from their cars, say. And there, there are some beautiful, beautiful things about that. That's what I'm excited about. I have no personal stake. I just want to say that because uh, I forestall any emails on the topic. And if you want to make a similar disclaimer, you can <laughs> Yes, too. I will make a similar disclaimer. I have no, no shares in Uber, although I am a frequent customer yeah. and feel like I bought a car right before Uber, my first car ever. I mean, my first new car ever. And and I think if I Uber had been part of my life a month later, I would, I mean, a month earlier, I wouldn't have bought that car. So, um, yeah, I, I, I do love Uber, even if I don't agree with everything everyone involved in Uber ever said. Or, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, uh, yeah. So I don't yeah. want to end on this Uber note. So tell me, uh, cl close and talk about storytelling, because you mentioned at the end of your article that storytelling is going to be a part of the economy of the future. So, I mean, I think overall, the when, when I think about uh, – I mean, there, there's some phrases that just feel ugly, like monetizing passion or the value added premium um, that, that are phrases I sometimes use in describing how I think business will work increasingly in the 21st century. But I think uh, for me anyway, it's really about, about a, a broader storytelling that creating products and services that fit into a person's life in, in a rich and intimate 
way and and learning how to you know a phrase i sometimes think about is you know people have to in in a world where you are receiving where you are you have to be more sensitive to market signals you have to be better at articulating the value you add the the thing the that place where your passion and interest coincides with a market demand you have to be more active you have to you know, one way of saying that is you have to be a salesman or salesperson for yourself, but you have to tell stories about yourself. But you also have to be better at articulating the needs that others have in your domain. So, you know, if you and I decided, well, you did direct a music video, um, you know, you and I don't know what we need in costumes. We don't know what we need in set design. And part of why we're going to hire the person we hire to do that is because they're good at articulating what we need they're, they're good at articulating what they can give and what we need. And so, you know, again, just using ivory soap as a crude example, it's a fairly low bandwidth product. Here's soap. It cleans you and it's not going to stink or ruin, you know, it's not going to rot. Um, but, but it's not really telling you much about um, how it will fit into your life. And by the way, I'm not talking about like some BS narrative of, you know, this soap is, you know, from some plant that'll make you feel like you're in the tropics and you'll be rich. And I mean, I'm sure that will continue to be an important part of advertising, but I'm talking about, um, you know, a more honest, more grounded articulation. When I started researching soap, for example, I learned that there really are different soaps and they really do interact with your skin differently. And I really should know more about that. And, and there are products I should buy and there are products I shouldn't buy because of who I happen to be and what I care about and some biology I have. Um, and and so th the that ability both to articulate your own value both like moral values but also the value you bring to the market and being able to articulate what people in your domain want and need i think that's increasingly going to be important that's increasingly going to be lucrative and so it's something people need to get better at and so i summarize that as you have to become a better storyteller my guest today has been the storyteller, Adam Davidson. Adam, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you, Russ. I always love it. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.